0: The title of this evening's talk is The Seamless Circle of Generosity. And we'll begin with a brief discussion about the paramis. So what is a parami? Paramis are the accumulated forces of purity within the heart, within the mind. Every mind moment that's clear, that's uh, free of greed and hatred and delusion, has a purifying force in the ongoing flow of consciousness. And each of us in our long evolutionary process has accumulated many of these forces of purity within our heart and mind. One of the roots of the Pali word parami conveys a sense of supreme quality. And paramita in Sanskrit means going towards something. So going towards supreme quality. Going towards perfection. And perfection is often the word that's used to translate the Pali word, parami. In the Theravada tradition, there are ten paramis to be developed and I'll just list these uh, in both uh, Pali and in English. Dana, generosity. Sila, virtue or ethical behavior. Nekama, renunciation. Panya, Wisdom. Virya, energy, effort. Kanti, patience. Saka, truthfulness. Aditana, resolve or determination. Metta, loving kindness. And upeka, equanimity. As each of these qualities grow and strengthen and mature within us, the accumulation of the qualities of non-greed, which are generosity, renunciation, and patience, and the accumulation of the qualities of non-hatred, which are loving-kindness, truthfulness, and virtue, and the accumulation of the qualities of non-delusion, which are wisdom, effort, energy, resolve, and equanimity, as each of these qualities grow and strengthen in us, they become very forceful. Very forceful in relationship to the most basically basic worldly sensual pleasures, all the way through to the highest most Refined happiness of the awakened, of the liberated mind, the liberated heart. The development, growth, and maturation of these perfections or these paramis, these forces of mind and heart, help to counter the forces that cause human beings such great suffering. Everything occurs, everything happens, because of particular causes and conditions. Nothing occurs randomly or accidentally. The practices that lead towards developing these qualities in our life, in our heart and our mind, aren't to be undervalued or thought of as not really so important, not the real practice. This aspect of the training of the mind is an essential, powerful, and necessary aspect of our practice of moving towards liberation. As these qualities grow, deepen, and get more and more refined, they're incredibly powerful causes of all spiritual accomplishment. It's said that the ultimate perfection of the paramis is the perfection of all of the qualities of the mind, the heart of a Buddha. The nature of the paramis can be understood as being of two basic aspects. The first being the paramis related to the purity of conduct or action, our way of being in the world, conduct in its everyday, worldly aspects. And these paramis are generosity, virtue, renunciation, effort, energy in meditation practice, truthfulness, and resolve to practice. The second basic aspect of the paramis is related to the purity of wisdom, uh, of understanding and insight, both in relationship to everyday worldly life and the wisdom, the understanding, the insight of the deepest liberating kind. The second this second aspect of the perfections includes the paramis of Panya, wisdom, patience, loving kindness, and equanimity. And of course, all of the paramis are interrelated and so bring each other to light over and over and over again. Our practice itself, in its process, is the practice and process of purification. The path of practice that leads one towards liberation, samatha, concentration, vipassana, insight and various other specific practices such as all of the Brahma-vihara practices are called the path of purification. The development of the paramis organically, naturally occurs within the context of each and all of these practices. In light of soon moving from an intensive retreat setting out into the larger world and considering that in our everyday life here in this intensive retreat setting and in our everyday life outside of the retreat setting, bringing the paramis more into the forefront of one's daily life can be quite helpful and fruitful they can really be a potent aspect of our practice. The paramis are, of course, to be practiced and developed for one's own liberation, but also for the benefit of one's family, one's friends, and one's community, and for the benefit of the world, One aspect of the blossoming and potential perfection of these qualities of mind and heart is that they're something to work towards, to practice towards benefiting others with no self-interest. The mind, the heart liberated from all self-centered concern. In other words, no greed, no hatred, no delusion which, of course, without a doubt, is of great benefit for everyone, oneself very much included. Traditionally, the practice, the the development and the gaining, so to say, of the paramis is called the work or the affair of a noble person. And so this evening, we'll look deeply into the parami of generosity, exploring the giving and the receiving that's inherent in this beautiful and essential quality of the heart, the mind. And beginning with a story. Some years ago, when I was living at the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts. There were times when I would uh, go to the Cambodian Peace Pagoda Temple which isn't very far from IMS. And I'd go there to pay a visit (coughs) to my friend Venerable Mahagosananda. Some of you may know of him or maybe even knew him. His name translates as Maha which means great and Gosananda, which translates as the sound of bliss. <clears throat> Maha, as he was fondly called, <clears throat> was from Cambodia and is uh, considered to be the patriarch of Cambodian Buddhism. And he's probably best known for the Dhamma Yatras, the long step-by-step walks for peace that he led through the Cambodian countryside villages and the refugee camps during and just after the Vietnam War. Maha died some years ago at approximately the age of 94. No one actually knew, including him, exactly how old he was. He'd been a monk for 80 years. Venerable Gosananda was an incredibly glowing and energetically light human being. He felt like one of the purest and lightest beings that I'd ever encountered. So simple, so unpretentious, so rare, a being with a truly unfettered mind and a pure heart. A few years before Maha's passing, I had the great honor and joy of teaching a three-day retreat with him up in Crestone, Colorado. And during that time a very sweet and uh, deep connection came to pass between us. The evening before the retreat was to begin, I was taken into his quarters to say hello. And we really didn't know each other very well and we hadn't seen each other for over a year. So I didn't know if he'd remember me. Being such an old man, uh, there were things that he didn't remember. So I recalled to him the last time that we had met and asked him if he remembered me. And he said, Oh yes, I remember your nose. (laughs) And I burst out laughing like we are doing right now. And I said, Well, it must be quite a nose. (laughs) And he very directly and very sweetly responded, It's a good nose. During a three-month retreat that I was teaching at the Insight Meditation Society, not very long after this Colorado retreat that I uh, taught with Venerable Mahagosananda, I visited uh, Venerable Gosananda at the Cambodian Peace Pagoda. And I felt like I was going to see my, my Dhamma grandfather, who actually used to call me mum. And I, at one point I asked him, uh, I think it was during that very visit, I asked him why he called me mum, when in fact he was so much older than me. And his response was, we have all been each other's mothers at some point, so you're Mom. So that day, Mom and grandfather, we sat and together and at, the, at a table, not meditating, and we drank tea and we, we laughed a bit and talked a little history of his life, about his life, talked about the three-month retreat that I was teaching and how everybody was so diligently practicing. And mostly we talked Buddha Dhamma, which was Venerable's favorite topic. Being with Venerable Gosananda was always a most precious gift that opened and lightened the heart, opened and lightened the mind. A gift he so selflessly offered simply through his being. Or maybe more accurately, a gift that he offered in just simply being. I found it quite amazing and surprising When I was with him and afterwards, my heart felt like it filled up my whole body, my whole being, and then on outward, an experience that would always continue on beyond our time together. When I left the Cambodian temple that day, to my total surprise, the two monks and one of the nuns uh, that lived there with Maha were filling the back seat of my car with large bags of Thai rice, tins of jasmine tea, and uh, sacks of sugar to for me to take back to all of the three-month yogis. They wanted to offer gifts to support of support for the yogis because they were so happy that people were, were practicing the Dhamma. So as I've said, this evening we'll explore generosity. This quality really holding a a special place and opportunity for all of us in our formal practice and in our life as our practice. Particularly now as you'll soon be taking yourself out of the intensive retreat setting and into the world of your daily life. And of course one of the most profound acts of generosity occurred over 2,500 years ago when Gautama Buddha, directly out of his own experience offered the teachings and the practices of liberation from suffering. It's because of the Buddha's mind and heart of boundless generosity and great compassion that all of us are sitting here together this evening. And so moving from a very recent story, a relatively recent story regarding Venerable Mahagosananda, to an old story, an ancient Buddhist legend, a tale that displays a number of paramis, in particular generosity, along with virtue and renunciation, wisdom, energy, effort, and resolve. And this particular uh, telling of this tale uh, comes from the tale as uh, uh, told by Rafe Martin. It's said that many mahakalpas and world cycles ago before our Buddha, Gautama Buddha, came to be another Buddha, Dipankara Buddha was to pay a visit to the small village of Amravati in India and to offer an evening of public talks revealing his Dhamma. Well, the villagers were very excited and they felt deeply moved and honored. And to show their great respect for the Buddha Dipankara, De they decided to level out the whole length of the road that the Buddha would walk on uh, through their village and then cover it with some very fine cloth. In the forest, just outside of Amaravati, lived a young man who was blessed with much goodness, physical beauty, intelligence, friendliness, kindness, and a great deal of virtue and vigor. He was the hermit Sumedha, who in a much later life was to be the future Buddha, our Buddha, Gautama Buddha. Sumedha's parents, wealthy Brahmins, had died just a few years before, leaving him with seven generations of accumulated property and great wealth. It's said that young Sumedha thought, my family has amassed much wealth, yet neither my parents nor any of my ancestors were able to take any of it with them upon leaving this world. What's the point of amassing more? One day I too will die. As there's a road that leads beyond suffering in this world, should I just remain idle? No. I will leave this sheltered life, become an ascetic, and find the way. So he announced his intention to the king and he gave all of his money to the poor and entered into the forest life of a hermit eating wild fruit, wearing clothes of bark, and letting his hair grow long and matted. And he practiced energetically, whether standing, walking, sitting, or lying down. Within a short time, he gained a profound insight into the true nature of things, and he bore a very bright wisdom which was never to be dimmed. He sat for many days blissfully absorbed in his newly found sense of freedom and understanding. On the day of Dipankara Buddha's visit to the village, Sumedha was roused out of his deep meditation by all of the excitement and the activity in the village. And it's said that seated cross-legged, he rose up into the air and flew through the forest until he came to the road. What's all the excitement? Why are you working in the midday heat? Why is the road being leveled and covered with golden cloth? Venerable Sumedha replied the workman, Don't you know the Buddha Dipankara is approaching the village? Sumedha's heart leapt with joy. A Buddha, he thought. Rare is it even to hear the word Buddha. Rare beyond all comprehending is it to meet such a fully realized one. So he immediately came down from his airy perch and offered to help the workman with the road. And he picked a particularly swampy patch of low ground to fill. And he worked with his heart and mind filled with light and joy, repeating over and over to himself, A Buddha, a Buddha. But before he was able to finish his task, he heard exquisite music and chanting and saw flowers being tossed in the air. The Buddha Dapankara was approaching. It said that Sumedha saw, saw multi, multi-hued rays of light extending out from the Buddha and a great soft golden light surrounding him. And then he thought, here's one who has attained all wisdom. Here's one free from all greed, all anger, all ego delusion, one in whom all goodness has been realized. I shall make an offering to the Buddha Dipankara in honor of all that he is." So Sumedha spread his bark cloth cape over the soft wet ground and then he lay down on top of it and loosening his very long hair long matted hair, he spread it out and he made a passage of himself for the Buddha Dipankara to walk on over the mud. And then he thought, like the Buddha Dipankara, I want to help all beings. I'm determined. Despite all the difficulties and danger, I will never turn back. I'm resolved to attain what the Buddha Dipankara has attained and to benefit all beings while the next moment the Buddha Dipankara arrived at the spot. And looking down at Sumedha, he knew, this hermit has made the resolve to be a Buddha. He will be successful. In many Mahakalpas and world cycles from now, he will become a fully realized one, an awakened one, a Buddha, and his name will be Gautama. And out loud surrounded by hundreds of people monks nuns lay women men and children the buddha dipankara stated in many mahakalpas and world cycles from now this hermit lying here will fulfill his great vow he will be a buddha named gautama when he becomes a young man he will see the four signs old age sickness death and a monk and he will leave his ordinary life in search of the deepest truths. After great exertions and near death, he'll receive a life-saving meal of milk rice. With renewed strength and energy, he'll go to sit at the foot of a bow tree, sit himself down, and continuing his effort with great diligence, he will attain supreme Buddhahood. Well, as you can imagine, Sumedha, lying there in the mud, became delirious with joy. My deepest wish shall be attained. I shall be a Buddha. The next moment the hermit Sumedha put his palms together, honoring Buddha, the Buddha Dipankara, who did the same in return to the Bodhisatta, and then continued on his way through the village, accompanied by hundreds of followers from all walks of life. The Bodhisatta Sumedha, from his bed of compassionate generosity, filled with joy and strength of purpose, it's said that he rose up into the air again and returned to his forest refuge where he remained practicing hard towards his goal. We usually think of generosity as the practice of offering. But in its fullness, it's really both offering and receiving, a process which very clearly helps to purify and transform the contraction of separateness engendered by self-centeredness. The development and deepening of the heart of generosity directly inspires and feeds the purification and transformation of greed and clinging, stinginess, hoarding, and saving. The development and deepening of generosity directly inspires and feeds the purification and transformation of the fear and the attachment that are so closely linked to the energies of greed and resistance generosity a perfectly natural aspect of our humanness and universally recognized as one of the most basic human virtues we offer we give help we receive the seamless circle just as the bodhisattva sumera so diligently and deeply practiced, cultivated, and manifested compassionate generosity. We also cultivated and manifested in a thousand different ways, no matter our culture, no matter our age, no matter who we are. I'm weeding and planting my garden early one summer morning many years ago. And my four and a half year old son wanders over to my work area. And with a very big and very bright smile on his face, he thrusts a bunch of yellow dandelions at me. And I receive them with delight and heartfelt gratitude. I happened to be in China during my 46th birthday. The friend that I was traveling with and I we uh, were staying in Shanghai in a two-bedroom apartment with a Chinese family who were good friends of my friend. And the 20-year-old daughter of the family had been admiring my favorite bracelet that I was wearing. I learned that in China the custom is to give gifts on one's birthday. So in the midst of experiencing uh, some degree of attachment, I decided to give my favorite bracelet to this young woman for my birthday. Though uh, actually feeling a bit like a one-handed giver during my consideration of doing this. And then finally deciding to do it. Though when it came to actually give her the gift, it was with both hands and an open heart. It was truly a joy at that point, though in the process of getting there it was very much a practice of generosity for me. A dear friend of mine waited some years for all of the (coughs) conditions to come together to allow her to sit a three-month retreat at the Insight Meditation Society. And finally they do. But just one week before the retreat begins she calls me to tell me that she's given up her spot because a very dear friend who was dying of cancer had asked her if she might consider being her caretaker which she did do for a number of months. A young cab driver in Thailand and I have been have an inspiring conversation about Buddhism and just as I'm getting out of his taxi, he takes this small bronze statue of his beloved teacher off the dashboard of his car and gives it to me. And I hesitate momentarily, not sure how to or even if I can receive this gift. And then my heart just simply opens and it's easy to receive the, this purity of generosity. A three-year-old Native American child from the Iroquois tribe sits in the middle of a circle surrounded by many blood relatives and extended family. There are delicious foods and beautiful clothing and blankets placed close to the child. After eating and drinking her fill and exploring the clothing and the blankets a voice from outside the circle calls, I'm hungry. Another voice, I'm thirsty. Another voice, I'm cold. And the child is then led out of the circle to share food and drink with the hungry and the thirsty and blankets with the cold one. A ceremony, a training, a training of the heart towards compassionate generosity. A number of summers ago now, forest fires raged in the Los Alamos and Española area here in New Mexico. Hundreds of individuals and families were evacuated from their homes and almost immediately there was an enormous outpouring of generosity coming from miles around. Clothing, food, all of the ordinary daily life needs as well as offers of housing, so much offered freely that at some point we were told that it was time to stop giving, that the needs of all of those suffering because of the fires had been met with great abundance. At some point along the way of your life, along the way of your practice, you decided You wanted to sit this retreat. And all of the conditions come together. And so you both give the gift of this precious time to yourself and receive the fruits of your practice and the teachings day by day as your retreat unfolds. Just for a moment now, imagine yourself standing outside your home each morning holding a large bowl of food. A line of saffron-robed monks is moving slowly, gracefully, down the road, each of them holding a round begging bowl. As they pass in front of you, you scoop out a portion of the food from your bowl, and put it into each of the monk's bowls. Imagine yourself as a child, standing with your mother or father or older sister or brother, and seeing this ritual, this offering, each morning, taking in the power of the generous heart so clearly present in this daily practice, taking in the joy and Genuine happiness quite apparent in this purity of giving. The benefits of generosity are easily learned each day. They simply become a natural part of your life. And from the Buddha, If beings knew, as I know, the results of sharing gifts, they would not enjoy their gifts without sharing them with others. Nor would the taint of stinginess obsess the heart and stay there. Even if it was their last and final bit of food, they would not enjoy its use without sharing it if there was anyone to receive it. The Buddha and his nuns and monks all lived in the same simple way. Making alms rounds each day for their sustenance. The Buddha taught and lived what is really a way of life. In speaking to his Sangha, he said, Thus you must train yourselves. We will be thankful and grateful. Not even the least thing that is done for us shall be forgotten. Giving and receiving. Generosity, a practice of the heart. Most of us here in this Western world don't have this kind of daily experience, this reminder. The monastic uh, training of the Begging Bowl isn't so easily available in this country, which at least in part Is the training the cultivation of renunciation, gratitude, and the understanding of interdependence that's directly related to the process of simply receiving what is offered in support of a way of life? Of course, in a retreat setting we do touch into that to some degree. Nor do we regularly in daily life engage from the other side, in offering food each day to those who depend on it for their sustenance. And through that process, reaping the wholesome benefits of cultivating a light, joyous, and generous heart. But as it is, for the most part, our Western culture encourages us to yearn for, thirst for, to acquire and to accumulate, and then to fixate and cling to our accumulations, material accumulations and the accumulation of ideas, opinions, and views that support this whole materialistic culture. And then in turn, we're deeply conditioned by this process to identify ourselves outwardly and inwardly through all of our accumulations and to think, feel, and project that this is who we are. In the light of this pervasive and quite sticky conditioning, I think that it takes a certain kind of courage to enter into a spiritual path that encourages us towards seeing, towards knowing, the truth of ourselves the truth that all things underneath and beyond all of this training this conditioning of attachment clinging and identification to really get to know that what it how it is and a poem by Naomi Shihab Nye in this uh was written in 1978 when she was in Colombia from a book called Different Ways to Pray. And she calls this poem Kindness. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose everything. Feel the past and the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened bra. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the claw then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread only kindness that raises its head out of the crowd of the world to say it is you it is I you have been looking for and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend There isn't really anything truly integrated into our Western culture that teaches and deepens us into living the truth of interconnectedness and the essential unsatisfactoriness and emptiness of accumulation. I think that as a culture, there's a deep, quite profound loss in this lack. The practice, the development of the heart of generosity is the seed, the foundation of spiritual development. Generosity is the ground of love, compassion, and joy, and a requisite towards the realization of liberation. As practice develops and our discerning capacity grows, the mind, the heart learns to see and know the ephemeral, the changing nature of all things. In relationship to our everyday world, what we think is ours today may be gone tomorrow, or may seemingly belong to someone else next week. Maybe it's even happened in this retreat. My seat in the dining room, or my walking path, my favorite walking path. What in this world really belongs to us? What can we really possess? Is there anything that really has any hard and fast owners? Everything changes hands or just simply dissolves. When we begin to touch this truth, it can be a powerful factor that inclines us towards cultivating our inner wealth. The inner, wel- inner wealth of the qualities of such as generosity, compassion, concentration, mindfulness, patience, loving-kindness, joy, and equanimity. An inner wealth of generosity is powerful medicine. It's an antidote the anguish and the confusion that's generated through the conditioning, through the training of accumulating and then fixating on and identifying with all of the material and mental accumulations. Generosity is a natural healthy, awakened response to the deepening understanding that there's nothing that can be held on to in this constantly changing world. Our inner wealth of generosity is a wealth that can never be depleted. It's actually a gift that can be forever given. And it's a seamless circle. It feeds itself. It grows itself. So from this perspective, as the Buddha tells us, the greatest gift is the act of giving itself. and uh, a short uh, sutta from the Anguttara Nikaya. Uh, it's called Two People from the Buddha. On one occasion the Buddha was staying near Savati in Jetta's Grove at Anana- Anathapindika's monastery. Then two Brahmins, feeble old men, aged, advanced in years, having come to the last stage of life, 120 years old, (laughs) went to the Blessed One. On arrival, they exchanged courteous greetings with him, and after an exchange of friendly greetings and courtesies, sat to one side. As they were sitting there, they said to him, Master Gautama, we are Brahmins, feeble old men, aged, advanced in years, having come to the last stage of life, 120 years old and we have done no admirable deeds, no skillful deeds, no deeds that ally our fears. Teach us, Master Gotama. Instruct us, Master Gotama, for our long-term benefit and happiness." And the Buddha says to them, "'Indeed, Brahmans, you are feeble old men, aged, advanced in years, having come to the last stage of life, 120 years old. You have done no admirable deeds, no skillful deeds, no deeds that a liar fears. This world is on fire with aging, illness, and death. And then the Buddha goes, says, goes on to say, When a house is on fire, the vessel salvaged is the one that will be of use, not the one left there to burn. So when the world is on fire with aging and death, one should salvage. One's wealth, by giving, by giving, what's given is well salvaged. Traditionally, in the Buddhist teachings, there are three kinds of giving that are spoken of. There's what's called beggarly giving, which is when we give with only one hand, so to say, still holding on to what we we give. It's still mine. Really how I uh, first began towards giving my young Chinese friend my bracelet. And in this kind of giving... We might give the least of what we have, and afterwards we might even wonder whether we should have given anything at all. The second kind of giving can be called friendly giving. And we give open-handedly, with both hands, so to say. And we share what we have because it feels natural and appropriate to do so. It's, It's a clear giving. And then there's what's called queenly or kingly giving. And that's when we give the best of what we have, even if none remains for ourselves. We give instinctively. We give graciously. We know ourselves to be only temporary caretakers of whatever has been provided. We know ourselves as owning nothing. And in this, in way in a way we could say there's no giving. There's just this spaciousness which allows objects and our caring heart to remain in the natural flow of life. This is the true heart of generosity. Shantideva, a century Buddhist monk, said, Others are my main concern. When I notice something of mine, I steal it and give it to others. There's nothing to be held onto to in this knowing of the perfectly natural, empty flow of life. In understanding the way of things, the heart of generosity quite naturally blossoms. Desmond Tutu from South Africa said this, he said, Africans believe in something that is difficult to render in English. We call it Ubuntu Boto. It means the essence of being human. You know when it's there and when it's absent. It speaks about humanness, gentleness, generosity, hospitality, putting yourself out on behalf of others, being vulnerable. It embraces compassion and toughness. It recognizes that my humanity is bound up in yours, for we can only be human together. And as we all know, we don't always live with the purity and the completeness of queenly or kingly generosity. This, at least in part, is one of the reasons why we practice. Something that I think is really important to remember throughout our practice is to remember to really be honest with ourselves, To honor and respect your capacity of heart at any given point along the way. And not to pretend anything to yourself or to others by imitating or acting out of some idealized image of, that you might think that you have of a generous, compassionate, loving person. It's important to recognize, honor, and respect your own limits along the way and come from a genuine place of heart. Sometimes we might think that we're acting out of generosity, out of unconditional kindness and compassion when in fact we may be acting out of fear of loss or fear of disapproval or maybe fear of some degree of a harsh verbal or physical reaction. Or sometimes we might give from a place of trying to avoid dealing directly with a particular person or a particular situation. Giving in this way actually perpetuates fear and delusion. It strengthens the closed heart of self-centeredness and disconnection, which in turn causes continued suffering in oneself and also Maybe in others as well. And we may be creating what in modern language is called codependency, rather than cultivating the truth of a healthy and vital connection to others and the unfolding of the wisdom of interconnectedness and not self, that the quality of generosity very naturally springs from. It may be that you don't yet have the feeling of a simple okayness about being here. Meaning an okayness about being alive in this life just simply because here you are alive in this life. Without this we can experience some degree of a pervasive, undifferentiated feeling of disconnection, a feeling of separateness and inner lack. If we don't yet feel the strength of us, within us of a wholeness and this simple okayness, this must be respected. Otherwise, giving and sharing And caring may be done with a subtle and often unconscious sense of getting something in return. When our heart hasn't yet healed from the learned, from the conditioned feelings of lack, there may be some misunderstanding in relationship to the truth of generosity. We may give ourselves away or lose ourself in an unhealthy way, in what seems like generous support, but which may actually be unskillful giving, unskillful support of others. When this happens, we actually feel less whole, more depleted and weaker, which is often accompanied by a lack of awareness, and ignorance of the real needs of others, along with a lack of awareness of our own needs. It's important to understand, respect, and honor in ourself and in others, that the wisdom of deep and true generosity develops and matures gradually. In relationship to this, on the scale of our work in the world, Thomas Merton wrote, to allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many projects, to want to help everyone in everything, is to succumb to violence. And as a counterbalance to this, some words from Ralph Waldo Emerson. To laugh often and much. To win the respect of intelligent people and the affection of children. To earn the appreciation of honest critics and to endure the betrayal of false friends. To appreciate beauty. To leave the world a bit better, whether by a healthy child, a garden patch, or a redeemed social condition. To know even one life has breathed easier because you have lived. This is to be successful." Mm -hmm. Our inclination to intuitively feel and know our wholeness, our okayness, which translates in part as experiencing our true nature, on the relative level of life and includes an intuitive sensing of interconnectedness. And our inclination to feel and manifest the generosity and compassion that naturally springs from this are perfectly natural inclinations. And our inclination to touch and know the freedom that's naturally inherent in deeply understanding the impermanent, unsatisfactory, and not-self nature of all things is a perfectly natural inclination. I think that for many of us, at least one or all of these inclinations are some of the deepest reasons that we're drawn to practice. And looking at the practice of generosity from another perspective, there's a practice that a Tibetan teacher told me about, a very basic practice for people who are extremely stingy, miserly people. People who sometimes identify themselves as being fiercely independent. This sort of person often has trouble giving even to themselves and may not be able to ask for help or to receive it graciously if it's offered. Receiving help, gifts, praise, even love can be quite difficult for people like this. They may not have the open-heartedness to give or to receive with gratitude, joy, appreciation, kindness, even if physically ill or distressed emotionally. So the practice is to take something very ordinary, something that one might not think of as being particularly valuable at all. So maybe a potato or a turnip and holding it in one hand and passing it to the other and passing it back and forth from one hand to the other hand, ongoing until you don't feel like a fool It gets easy and gets easier and very easy to do. And from that, once that's accomplished, there are the higher practices. If one's motivated, if one's inclined to continue the practice of generosity and relinquishment, one moves on to seemingly more valuable objects either metaphorically or literally and uh, the giving symbolically develops into letting go of, relinquishing, offering everything all of the accumulations all of the outer material accumulations (coughs) the inner accumulations of habits and preferences, ideas, beliefs and one is even encouraged to relinquish the secret holdings, whatever those might be for any of us. And the practice is done in its final stage, ideally with a a mound of precious jewels that are symbolically offered over and over again to the Buddha, to the Dhamma, and to the Sangha, and to all beings everywhere. At one point I did this practice But instead of a mound of precious jewels there was a mound of rice. That was the offering and that actually felt quite appropriate. And really this is what we're doing in our practice here without all of the paraphernalia. Learning to give and learning to receive. Letting go of control and receiving what's given receiving each moment of our life just as it is, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, with a trust that it's just right, just enough, for our spiritual growth to unfold from in this moment. We can give ourselves the gift of truly learning to be in the present moment with a kind and open heart, with a clear, concentrated, mindful awareness, receiving the present moment as just as it is, with gratitude, with appreciation, humility, and whatever degree of equanimity, of growing equanimity. With unconditional acceptance, we learn to apply the wise and careful attention of a concentrated mindful awareness in the midst of any exchange, any relationship, any emotional state, any sensation that moves through our body to any task that we might be engaged in to the experience of the breath from its birth all the way through to its death we're learning to receive life fully be kind grateful generous knowing that this very life is our path to the deepest ease of well-being and joy. That this very life is intimately connected to the development of a deep generosity of heart, the liberation in this life, and the joy and the sense of ease. Someone once asked, Gandhi, a bodhisattva of our time, why do you give so much? Why do you serve all these people, he was asked. And maybe surprisingly, Gandhi responded and said, I don't give to anyone. I do it all for myself. In truth, the aim and the fruit of generosity are twofold. We give to help and to free others, and we give to help and to free ourselves. This is the fullness, the seamless circle of generosity. Through our practice, the energy of it grows and flows within us and from us. And we begin to know it and to live it quite naturally as who we are. Closing the talk this evening, I'd like to uh, end with a story, another story. About 30, maybe plus, 30 or so years ago, along with my interest in Buddhism, I had a Native American teacher named Wallace Black Elk. And once or twice a year, he would come to the area of Michigan where I lived to teach us. One year I invited him uh, to come and stay in my house, a small, uh, very old five-room log house out in the Michigan woods. And at that point, just one of my sons and I were living there. The summer afternoon arrived when Wallace came. Uh, And um, an old, uh, well-used, smallish car pulled up in the driveway. And Wallace was the first one to get out. He was, uh, he's quite a big man, about six foot three and very big boned. And he looked even bigger uh, in his cowboy boots and his tall cowboy hat, and then it was like one of those cars in the circus that pulls up in the center ring, and the doors open, and people just keep pouring out of the car. And you're amazed, you know, at least I was as a kid when I went to the circus, amazed at how many people can fit into such a small car. So as my son and I watched, seven people emerged out of this little car, Wallace's helpers and members of his family. And it turned out that there were 11 people living in our little house during this 10-day period. And the thought came up, how will we all live and sleep in this tiny house? Well, the space just seemed to expand. People were sleeping everywhere. Food arrived, People would drop by in the afternoon to meet with and listen to Wallace as he shared his earth wisdom. And at night, uh, Wallace and his extended family led ceremonies and practices in the sweat lodge down the road at the Ecology Center until about 12.30 a.m., and at that point, at twelve thirty, one 1 o'clock in the morning, it uh, was time for our big dinner because no meals uh, were to be taken through the afternoon and the evening before the sweat lodge ceremonies. During these uh, 10 days, I had to let go of many of my preferences and many of my habits, my habits of living there, how I use the various spaces in my house, my usual schedule, the rhythm of my life, my food preferences, and other various preferences. Wallace and one of the other members of his family smoked cigarettes, cigarettes continuously in my no smoking house. <laughs> People slept all over the house, as I mentioned. And the day began late in the morning with uh, the late night sweat lodge ceremonies and the 1 a.m. dinner time. Every afternoon, the house was filled with 15 or 20 people coming by to listen to uh, as Wallace shared the teachings in a very casual, conversational way. And somehow, there was always enough food. We'd come back from the sweats, and there would be bowls of food at the door, or bowls of food left on the kitchen counter and often a friend and I would cook up something at twelve or one in the morning for our main meal of the day. The last night Wallace and friends said that they wanted to do a ceremony, a gratitude ceremony in our living room for my son and I. And as we all uh, sat together in a circle that evening each one of us was asked to offer some words from our heart in relationship to our 10 days together. And then they offered my son and I beautiful treasures that they had brought with them in gratitude for sharing our space and our time and our energy with them. And then Wallace spoke and he said, if one shares from the heart, shares material possessions, there will always be enough, abundance. If one shares one's space, time, and energy. It's an open-ended flow. There's no boundary, no frame on what's available in these areas. If one shares from the heart, it's in this that one receives everything. Simply in the giving, there's abundance. When everyone left the next day in seeing them off, my son and I stood outside watching them all get back into the old car. It's kind of like watching a a movie playing backwards. And then the two of us, my son and I, walked back into the house. And we stood there in amazement. The seeming great expanse of our house, holding all of the people, all of the activity, all of the energy for all of those days, it seemed to have shrunk as we stood there looking inside the house. And yet somehow, internally, we both felt tremendously expanded. The powerful medicine of generosity. And closing the talk with (coughs) a poem by Mary Oliver, this one she calls Goldenrod. On roadsides, in fall fields, in rumpy bunches, saffron and orange and pale gold in little towers, soft as mash, sneeze-bringers and seed-bearers, full of bees and yellow beads and perfect flowerlets and orange butterflies. I don't suppose much notice comes of it except for honey, and how it heartens the heart with its blank gaze. I don't suppose anything loves it except perhaps the rocky voids filled by its dumb dazzle. For myself, I was just passing by when the wind flared and the blossoms rustled and the glittering glittering pandemonium leaned on me. I was just minding my own business when I found myself on their straw hillsides, citrone and butter-colored and was happy. And why not? Are not the difficult labors of our lives full of dark hours? And what has consciousness come to anyway so far that is better than these light-filled bodies? All day on their airy backbones they toss in the wind. They bend as though it was natural and godly to bend. They rise in a stiff sweetness, in the pure peace of giving away one's gold. And let's sit quietly for just a moment. Thank you for listening.